Welcome to the Meditation Podcast. You can find all our episodes on meditationpodcast.org. We're also on BitChute and YouTube. You'll find the links in the podcast description. My four-order podcast, the Speaking Podcast, Learn Bullish Podcast, The Awakening and the Crypto, as well as being a podcast coach. And all can be found on RoyCon.com. Today, my guest with a Scottish name, born in Scotland, but not Lavender, please welcome Neil McKinley. Thanks, Roy. It is true, born in Scotland, but not living there. Here I am in Victoria, BC. So you might let the listeners know who's Neil. Uh, well, you know, my name is Neil McKinley, as you said, a little bit of an introduction. Um, I'm a teacher of embodied meditation. I'm also a student because of that, of embodied meditation. And I actually learned to meditate when I was a teenager. I was a competitive swimmer and a swim coach taught us to uh, how to meditate late one night at a swim meet. Um, you know, about 30 years ago, I started giving form to my engagement with practice. You know, initially it was fairly loose and informal. About 30 years ago, I started to give it some form. And I studied and practiced in two successive communities, both rooted in Bo Tibetan Buddhism, which means, you know, I was engaging formula, formal curriculum. I was doing long retreats. And then in about 2005, 2006, I started teaching, which is, you know, kind of started the long road that brought me here. Embodied meditation. What's that when it's at home? Oh, embodied meditation. You know, every form of meditation that I'm aware of, and I'm not aware of every form of meditation, just every form that I am aware of involves taking our wandering meditation, taking our wandering meditation and placing it somewhere. You know, we, our attention wanders and we place it somewhere. Our attention wanders and we place it somewhere. And there's a wide range of placements that we can avail ourselves of. And with embodied meditation, what we're doing is we are uh, deliberately, repeatedly placing our intention in some aspect of embodied experience of this apparently bounded body that most of us associate with the word embodiment of the body of sense perceptions of the body of the earth, deliberately coming back over and over and over again to this. Excellent. So with the retreats, you might explain, because is it like a weekend retreat or would you go for a few weeks and what, what, what would it entail? I did a full range from um, one day retreats, to weekend retreats, to uh, I, I did some what were called city retreats with a teacher named Pema Chodron, in which it was kind of like an early version of an online retreat in which we would, uh, she would teach on a Monday in Berkeley, and then we'd get the video of that on Wednesday in Victoria, we'd watch the video, we'd do the study that she asked us to do. And then occasionally we'd come together as a Victoria group and, uh, you know, practice on a weekend. Two really quite long retreats. Um, I did, I don't know, 12, 14, 16. They're called Datans, one month meditate in-person meditation retreats, which involved a lot of meditating, you know, getting up at maybe seven, meditating for an hour, having breakfast, going back, meditating for two or three or four hours, having lunch, a little bit of a break, going back, meditating through the afternoon, break for dinner meditating into the evening with maybe a little bit of time for a talk somewhere in there, but most of the day would be spent in meditation. And what kind of journey do you go? Cause I've never done that. What kind of journey do you go on your head when you're doing that much meditation? 
Well, it's really interesting. It really ranges. I often uh, say to people that, you know, if you look at meditators, you just don't really get a sense of what's going on. If you walk into a meditation room, you know, you sit and you see a bunch of people just sitting quietly. And the internal experience, as you're pointing to, is you know, really quite varied and quite different for all of us. And from moment to moment, session to session, it can be very peaceful and very settled, just a sense of being completely aligned with this body, this moment, this life, which is really quite, can be really quite beautiful. Peaceful is the word that would often get, I would use to describe that. Um, It can be very tumultuous, you know, a lot of internal issues are rising up, you know, memories, feelings are rising uh, to be greeted, which is, you know, challenging. And it can also be, quite frankly, tiring and boring. So there's a certain stretch of time where it's just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to stay awake for the, the, the rest of this session? I'm sitting up in meditation posture and I feel like I'm going to fall over. You know, that's kind of an example of some of the range of experiences within that. But over the period of a month, there would be a sense of settling. I think that would be the most, if I had to pick a single word, that would be an overall sense of settling into the stuff of my life, you know, day after day after day. And what you mentioned sitting. So are you sitting in a certain posture with your hands and are your eyes opened or closed? Well, it's a certain posture, hands resting on the thighs or re- um, resting in our the lap. And, you know, generally the instruction is has, that I've received and practiced is eyes open. Sometimes that gets a bit distracting. And, you know, if my attention's not able to settle and my eyes are open, I can start looking all over the place. So I will close my eyes from time to time, but generally eyes open. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about embodied meditation, you know, the style of meditation, specific style of meditation I practice and teach is there is there can be a lying down component to it. You know, we'll often spend a little bit of time um, lying down just to allow ourselves to relax and make it a little bit easier for our attention to settle into embodied experience, to find and come into embodied experience. So there would also be that aspect present in the uh, in the sessions that we would do and i know just from uh, reading the profile that like you've spoke to you know say 100 plus people but you also do online so what have you kind of i mean I, I, unfortunately a lot of people in the last two years of craziness have actually have to transfer but hopefully you know they can get back to normal but the different ways of connecting and organizing yourself both online and offline well, online's actually been really interesting. I think the biggest thing that's helped me adapt to teaching online and practicing online is the recognition that it's different from in-person. Not better, not worse, but different. And so um, having made a few adaptations, you know, because of that difference, I find that there's a kind of, even though we're spread all over the globe, when we come together online, there's a kind of intimacy in our lives, intimacy that arises from working in that way, that is, again, it's not better, not worse, but it's not, that kind of intimacy is not apparent when we get together in a shrine room in some particular location. You know, you and I are sitting here talking right now, and I can see behind you, I can see your background, I can see your bookcase, 
and it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. What kind of books does Roy read? And how has Roy's background changed from day to day and from week to week? And, oh, he's got a new chair today. Like those kind of nitty gritty details, I find really ground my sense of meditation in the stuff of my everyday, uh, the stuff of our everyday lives, which again, not better, not worse, but when we're in person and we go off to a shrine room somewhere, that's not a feature that we get. And so I really do like that uh, person-to-person intimacy that arises from doing this work online. And, you know, I, I, I am quite grateful for the opportunity to have done so much of it the last couple of years. Not that it's going to replace in-person, but just it's, it's offering something um, unique to the mix of teaching and practicing meditation. I suppose the advantage as well is, you know, like I know a lot of people like to go away for retreats, but, you know, not everybody can afford to go to these different locations and the travel time and everything. Whereas, you know, you're just in your place, you set aside, whether it's, you know, so many hours and then you're you're back in your own, you know, comfort of your own home. Yeah, I mean, even if you're looking at something as simple as a one hour meditation session, you know, when you're when one's doing it at home, it's like, okay, 10 minutes before I need to set up and then, you know, maybe I need to put things away at the end. So the hour takes, you know, an hour and 20 minutes out of our day. But if, you know, you have to drive across town and you have to take, arrange someone to, you know, take care of your kids or walk your dogs, it, it's even in that sense, it's, you know, a much bigger challenge to fit into the stuff of what for most of us are really busy lives. Exactly. Um, I see you're an author as well. Just curious, is it something related to this that you've written or something totally off topic? No, it's loose. It's loosely. I shouldn't say that is, is, is actually related to this. You know, I said a few, a uh, few minutes ago, or I pointed it toward my background as a competitive swimmer after the, my swimming career ended, I spent 20 years as a swim coach and those 20 years overlapped with the years that I was beginning to give some formal shape to my meditation practice. And I became really interested in how, I mean, I'm still very interested. It's the core of my work. I really became interested in how the stuff of our daily lives and the stuff of meditation practice actually interpenetrate and influence one another. I became specifically really interested in how my work as a swimmer and my work as a swim coach actually overlapped with my engagement of the path and practice of meditation. And uh, the book I wrote is called Learning to Swim. And it's a a short, it's a series of short nonfiction essays about just that, about how I saw the teachings and practices of meditation influence and be influenced by my years as a uh, competitive, competitive swim coach, largely, although there's a couple of essays that point back to my swimming days. And when you were swimming and the same with, uh, you know, your fellow swimmers and you were introduced to meditation, did you all improve in your speeds? Did it have an impact or was it just more to be kind of calm? At that point, it was dating myself a little bit. It was the late 1970s and at least in the swimming world, the what we now call, you know, sports psychology or the mental aspect of sport was coming more to the fore. It was becoming a little bit more mainstream. It was still a little bit fringe, but it was coming more to the mainstream. And so we actually engaged a full suite of uh, things, mental training things 
as a team. And meditation was one of them. Progressive relaxation was another. Visualization was another. How to separate the influence from one to the other. I don't think I could do that for one from the other. But I do think that that suite did affect my capacity to perform as a swimmer. And it did. It gave me a set of tools to deal with the stress and the uncertainty of the situation, which was helpful. Excellent. I know that you're involved with two communities, the Living Meditation Network and the Online Gatherings. You might explain what both of them are. Yeah, so both of them are online communities that I offer. Um, the Living Meditation Network, and both, I should go back, both are, you know, I was insinuating or pointing in this direction with our talk about the, the, the book that I wrote, Learning to Swim, and kind of my explorations when I was a swim coach. I've um, long had this curiosity about how meditation and everyday life influence one another, how everyday life influences our meditation practice. And my work, it really centers around engaging people who have a similar sense, who don't want to separate quite so much, that feel like that there is a way to bring meditation in our daily life more closely together, and that that's how our, our path actually is revealed and emerges for us. And so these two communities are a couple of resources for that. The Living Meditation Network is a free-to-join online hub that offers a range of resources for people to take advantage of. There are guided meditations, there are short talks, there are questions posted, there are quotations posted. Um, I, it links to a range of other things that I offer online, like my podcast, like my uh, blog that I update. And then the online gatherings is a subscription-based community where we actually go deep with this. We have, there's the option of three Zoom meetings every week. One of the, two of the Zoom meetings, the Tuesday and Thursday Zoom meetings, um, we practice together, we do a guided practice together, and then we actually explore some aspect of bringing meditation to life. We've been exploring the Buddhist teachings on the paramitas for the last long while. Um, and then on Saturday, we get together and it's an unguided practice session, and we have some time to talk with one another to have a discussion period. And all of it, you know, is guided towards bringing this practice and these teachings more fully into the stuff of our daily life. And back to what we said a few days, a few minutes ago, the online format actually is really, really good for that. Really, really good for blurring the lines, blurring the distinctions between one and the other. And for somebody that's looking to start meditation, do you think the guided is the best route to start off? I find guided is a really great way to start. Yeah, I find that guided meditation is a really, it's like it gives you a scaffolding or an infrastructure to work within as a practitioner. And I find that scaffolding really helpful, you know, okay, do this, and do this, and do this. And one of the things I'm very aware of in the gatherings that I, the online gatherings that I spoke of is the importance of not only having the scaffolding, but loosening the scaffolding from time to time and then letting the scaffolding fall away, which is why one of the reasons why we balance what we're doing between guided practice and unguided practice. So people can work without that scaffolding and, you know, kind of develop, find their own way in and through the practice. 
And uh, have you worked on uh, brasswork? There's a significant portion of the work we do is tending to the breath. That's one place that we can place our attention in embodied practice is on the breath. And so I guess the answer would be yes to that. Okay. And I, I know that you, because I've with the profile, a survivor from a relationship with a dysfunctional spiritual mentor. What's that about? Yes. What's that about? <laughs> so I spoke to being part of two different or two successive communities as part of my training, part of my education um, in this work. And um, beginning in about 2016, my relationship with the second community started to fray. I started to feel uncomfortable, um, more and more uncomfortable with the way the leader was treating his close students, you know, myself being one of those, but more and more uncomfortable. And in 2018, I was invited to be part of an inner circle of the senior most students. And at that point, my discomfort intensified considerably. Um, it was what I say to people is it was like I had reached the end of the, uh, the yellow brick road. And I had stepped into the wizard's castle and the curtain was pulled back and I really didn't like what I was seeing. It became apparent to me that in spite of what I believed and in spite of what I'd been told and horrifyingly, in spite of what I had told so many others myself, what was driving that community was not, in my opinion, the, the teachings or the practices, or even the well-being or the development of the students, what was driving was what was the driving force was the whims and the wants of the leader. And the extent that he was willing to go to assert those whims and wants was, I mean, it was a, it was appalling. I, I've uh, say that it, for me, it was a, an environment at the end that was characterized by manipulation and disempowerment and disrespect. And through all of 2019, I really struggled with this. I struggled with the dissonance between what I thought was going on and what was actually going on, that rub. And at a certain point, I became so mentally and physically com compromised by the situation. I mean, to be blunt, I was, a, I was a mess. I became so mentally and physically compromised by this dissonance that I had to leave. And so <clears throat> in February of 2020, that's what I did. I left. Like, because I, I, I'm assuming that's not a rare occurrence. It's obviously probably happens to a lot of people, but I suppose the best thing is to have kind of more communities that you can, you know, get gather and have your space. Because when something like that happens, sometimes if you're on your own or you're relying on being in, you know, a certain organization, it can hurt a lot more. Yeah. And, it, you know, shockingly in this particular instance, in this community that I was part of, you know, my experience was by no means unique. It happened quite regularly. And, uh, you know, probably hundreds of students over the years have had something similar that has led them to leave. And, you know, it does, it raises an interesting question, that interesting question of, of um, what helps What's helpful in that departure process? How do you make your way through it? And I think you're right. Having um, other sources of community has been important. Also being alone for a little bit has been important. There was a, within that community, there was a strong sense of narrative, strong sense of story 
that I um, internalized and I've needed some, a lot of alone time to kind of um, find my way through that and realize, oh, this is, was true and this was helpful. And yeah, this was not true. And this was not helpful. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that in a group, in a, in a community setting. I needed, I've needed solitude, but uh, certainly having other sources of community. And there's been some friends, both from within that community, other people who have left, who have been tremendous resources um, for me. And people who are outside, have been outside that community, who've also been tremendous resources for me in the two years, two plus years since uh, my departure. With, with all your experience, the journey that you've done, what's your kind of daily routine regarding meditation? Well, my daily routine is, um, you know, for whatever reason, I seem to be a fairly regular meditator. Um, it's just something that I do. Uh, when it happens varies depending upon my schedule, but um, generally I practice every day. There are certainly some exceptions. Life does sometimes um, uh, demand my attention go elsewhere. And um, as we were talking about before we came uh, live here, you know, the demands of essentially running a business um, sometimes pull me away. And honestly, sometimes I forget because I'm teaching meditation. Sometimes I forget like, okay, was that a, did I teach meditation today? Have I done my own practice? Because they're different things, but sometimes they get a little bit mixed up for me. Um, but generally, I meditate every day, and it involves uh, 40, a 40 to 45-minute session, typically, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. And I spend about half of it lying down, as we talked about uh, a couple of minutes ago. I spend about half of it lying down, just giving myself a chance to slow down and a chance to settle in. And that's really a very simple part of my practice. It's really just starting to connect with those are my toes. Those are my feet. That's the ground underneath me. And then I sit up and I do some sitting practice in the second half of that. And the sitting practice typically involves placing my attention on the breath, coming into the lower belly, feeling the presence of the earth underneath and settling into this and allowing embodied experience to offer whatever it wants to offer, giving that part of my life some room to express itself and share itself with me. And do you do it in silent or is there a music in the background? I tend to, I tend to, I do it silently. Sometimes there is household noise in the background, you know, doors slamming and pots scraping and, you know, people moving about and, uh, We've got a, a, a during the day a busy street outside, so there's always something going on out there. But uh, generally in silence. Oh, and just uh, finally, your your podcast. You might let people know a bit about it. Um, my podcast is called "Bringing Meditation to Life," and um, you know. The intention here is the theme that we've come back to again and again and again, which is this. Um, sense that life has, our everyday life has something to offer our meditation practice and our meditation practice has something to offer our everyday life. You know, um, 
I talked about leaving this community, this long-standing community in 2020. And while there was some relief in that experience, I mean, as I said, I, the, the situation had become just so intolerable for me. While there was some relief in that, the sense of loss and grief was and is overwhelming. And um, while understandably, a lot of my former peers stepped away from meditation practice once they left that community, I, for some reason, stepped towards it. I start, my meditation continued to be regular and I stripped things down and it got more simple and less expectant and less demanding than it had been in the previous years, but I stepped toward meditation practice. And as I settled into my loss and grief, I found that there was a kind of knowing, a kind of wisdom waiting for me um, that really met my lostness, my sense of, I have no idea what is going on here. And now those familiar with Buddhist meditation are not going to be surprised by this. I've just offered a tradi very traditional description of meditation practice. We settle in, that's one phase of meditation. And then we tap into a deep kind of intelligence. That's a second phase of meditation practice. But what shocked me was that the experience seemed to contain a third phase, a phase in which the knowing of my embodied life actually was speaking to how I could be in the world. It was speaking, it was giving me a path through this very difficult experience. You know, so if what came up was, you know, I need to rest, well, I rested. I need to reach out, I reached out. I need to seek trauma therapy, which I did a lot of, I'll do that. I need to share with others what's going on for me. And much to my surprise, I found myself moving through my loss and grief in that way. And much to my surprise, I found almost this lifelong sense that meditation and everyday life have something for one another, being affirmed in a really strong way. And that's kind of the intention of the podcast. I mean, it's the intention of all the work that I do, but the intention of the podcast, the bringing meditation to life podcast is to offer us glimpses of what that might be like. And um, I'm currently alternating a couple of formats there. Sometimes um, I'll offer a reflection, a short reflection, a short essay from my own life experience, talking about this dynamic, this mutual influencing. And uh, sometimes I'll interview other meditators and we'll hear about what it's like for them. How do these two influence and illuminate one another for you? And um, that would be the podcast, you know, that is the bringing meditation to life podcast, um, just a chance to catch glimpses in, I guess you could say real time of what it's like for us. Okay, here's what it's like for me. Here's what it's like for another practitioner. How is meditation influencing our lives? How are our lives influencing meditation practice? What does that rich rewarding stew look like and feel like and seem like for us yeah, excellent neil really enjoyed our conversation so you might let people know how can they get in contact with you well um the best way i mean i am you can find me in all the usual places you know facebook and instagram and insight timer um, my podcast is on all the podcast outlets the usual outlets the main way though is my uh website which is neilmckinley.com. And I'm a rare McKinley where the 
end of my name is L-A-Y, not L-E-Y, so neilmckinlay.com. And here you'll just find an overview of everything that I'm doing. Um, there are guided meditations, there's the podcast, there's writings on meditation and life. There are the two communities we talked about. There's access to the Living Meditation Network, there's access to the online gatherings. Um, but uh, really, the, the best way is to just look through the site. Um, there's a newsletter there people can subscribe to, and it's a great way to get familiar with what I offer, to um, be updated on what's going on. And honestly, because the emails show up about once a month, to be reminded that meditation can have a place in our life. There's a lot of people that I work with who I don't see for years, but I'll run into them and they'll say like, I'm really so glad I subscribed to your newsletter. And I'm like, oh, well, do you find the guided meditations helpful? Do you like the, yes, the, the blog? Are you listening to the podcast? They say, no, 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 no. I never did look at any of that, but I see, I get the email and I remember, oh yeah, I want meditation to be part of my life. And, you know, initially I was kind of like bummed out about that. I was like, oh no, like read something. Or, but now I really am glad that I have this opportunity just to send this out and for people to be reminded, oh yeah, meditation. Well, maybe I'll do something about that. So that would be the main way, the, the um, website and the newsletter subscription that you can do on the website. Excellent. Yeah. And I made sure I put uh, the links, button, the audio and the video. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. That's all for the Meditation Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on meditationpodcast.org, on YouTube. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, share with your friends. Until next week, take care.